When the girls are recipients of a windfall via a winning lottery ticket, they cannot wait to celebrate. But perhaps they should have because now they've lost that ticket. A mad search ensues, which includes a stop at a thrift shop, Michael Jackson, an auction, and a homeless shelter. After the saddest montage, the girls have learned their lesson. So, without further ado, we present Brother, Can You Spare That Jacket? Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the mysteries that come and go. The time has come for another of the least liked episodes of the series. Please stay tuned. I promise Coco and I will make it worth it. These ladies always know how to put together stellar outfits. Even though she's just in khakis and a yellow sweatshirt, Dorothy's hair sprayed to the god's quaff and snazzy earrings really have her looking dolled up. Walking over to the couch before taking a seat next to her mother, who is in gray pants, a vertically striped pinkish shirt, and a red cardigan, who is reading a letter from an old friend who is coming to Miami for a visit. Joanne Pescatori wasn't, as Dorothy asks, the lady who owned the Brooklyn candy store she frequented. Joanne is actually Rose's friend, and the letter Sophia is reading is not for her. Legally, Sophia has committed obstruction of correspondence, which is a serious felony that could even include jail time. This isn't concerning to Sophia. She'd rather keep reading the letter and have Dorothy join her in trying to decipher if Joanne is a lesbian. When Chipper, even for Rose, comes in the front door in a dress of mint with a Pepto-Pink blazer from JCPenney's Nightmare Hospital collection, she asks the girls to guess what she has. Hoping to answer her own question, Sophia guesses a friend who's a lesbian? That's a good guess, but Rose has something even better than that. Although, I'd beg to differ, What's better than a lesbian friend? According to Rose, it's lottery tickets. Following close behind is Periwinkle and Pink wearing Blanche, who has bags on her arms from a shopping spree. She was craving some leather, and she found just that. Dorothy isn't interested in the details. She just doesn't want Blanche's new leather daddy to block the driveway with his motorcycle. Without any interest in more leather stories, the girls return to the excitement of their what has apparently been a weekly habit— of buying lottery tickets. Now, these aren't for Powerball drawings or anything like that where they have to wait for the numbers. These are plain old scratch-it tickets, as they're called in these parts. To win, you simply need to match three symbols. If you get the three, you read the key to find out what the corresponding prize is. Coco, as you know, I had a thing with scratch-its for a while, even winning a whole spool of them from a radio contest. I'm curious if you were ever into lottery tickets of any kind. Never get the Powerball or the Mega Millions or Scratchers or... I think I don't get along well with lottery tickets or gambling in general. I don't. I have a hard time committing to it. <laughs> and I think that's why I always lose. <laughs> so I don't like it. Spoken like a true Gen Xer. Why gamble? 
my parents taught me not to try or something. <laughs> so you played it a handful of times, had no luck and no interest, and you're like, no. Yeah, I, I'll do it sometimes when it gets up to a billion dollars. Yeah. If it gets to some crazy amount. Somebody's got to win. Or sometimes I'll just be in, in a you know mini mart or whatever and think, oh, I'll just get one because I get that feeling. Yeah. I don't know. It's always and wrong. And they're fun. They are fun. And I, I do love... appreciate that they've changed them so they have like crosswords That's or word finds. So it takes a little bit of time. I to love do. that crossword. I love that. <laughs> well, you love crosswords. I sure do. I think my mom played the lotto a lot because she, mm. oh, she worked at a high school and they did a lot of lottery. Oh, pools. like the pools. Yeah. yeah. So there was always I think she played. She always played, too, because you don't want to miss out on that. Oh, yeah. Everyone You're the one leave. teacher that doesn't have to retire. Or doesn't get to retire. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare. And she would have she would have been pretty cranky about that. <laughs> if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. <laughs> Got to get in those pools. Man. The tickets Rose purchased are Miami themed. If you get three coconuts, you only get a hundred bucks. But if you see three palm trees, you get $10,000 or $18,513 in today's money. And that's exactly what Dorothy's ticket has revealed. She just won the jackpot prize. At first, Sophia compares Dorothy's knowledge of what palm trees look like to what hot doctors look like. Just because you can recognize them, it doesn't mean you have them in front of you. But in this case, she does. After checking and checking, the girls start to celebrate. Rose gets to doing the math. Why, 10 divided by 4, that means they'll each get, like, $2,000. Maybe she was taking taxes into consideration, as they would actually be getting $2,500 each. Not wasting any time, Sophia has decided that between $500 to $1,000 of her winnings will go towards the purchase of a red tricycle with a grocery basket. She will be using it mostly to pick up men at the shuffleboard courts. Blanche has preemptively spent her share on a leather bomber or aviator jacket. After being worn by pilots in the World Wars, they became quite popular. Today, she would have to spend tricycle money on one as they range in price between $400 and $1,000. Since this was in the 80s, the distressed look was very in. It's funny, even with all the outrageous outfits of the time, Blanche still manages to pull most of them off. This jacket, however, is far too big and just looks wrong on her, like she borrowed her brother or boyfriend or Dorothy's jacket. It's wearing her, darling. Pulling up to a, a group of people in a, on a tricycle <laughs> is cool. And yeah. it's a million times cooler when you're old and you do it. When you're old, it's like, whoa, you're still out and about and doing it. It's a huge move. Yeah. You're going to be the, the leader of that group. And you got the grocery basket? Forget it. Yeah. You got sunflower seeds to give out to everybody Taking that thing antiquing. You can only get a couple of items, but yeah. Yeah, I like it. I like that for our future. And yeah, that leather jacket didn't look... I'm trying to think of who that would look good on. Maybe like... Uh, I mean, Kenny Loggins. Yeah, it's a Kenny Loggins jacket with the sleeves pushed up. Yeah, Kenny Loggins with the <laughs> sleeves pushed up. <laughs> Kenny Loggins jacket with the sleeves pushed up. Yeah, I feel like that's the one he wore for the music video for Danger Zone. Stop it! You know, you I know, know I how you feel about, about that song. No, please tell the listeners real quick. I why. think I have before, but I love I love that song. Obviously, and years ago I went to see Kenny Loggins at the Hollywood Bowl. 
And he didn't play Danger Zone. <laughs> he played everything but Danger Zone. He played the stupid Winnie the Pooh song. He did the Footloose song. Mm-hmm. People were like wine drunk and like dancing, dancing. People got really excited during the Footloose song. Is it called Footloose? Yeah. Because you got to cut loose Footloose. Anyway, Kenny Loggins could get away with that jacket. Blanche, on the other hand, does not. You can't see her perky bosoms at all. That's right. And that's where well, it's a lot of her power generates from. <laughs> More than the fashion of it, Rose is concerned with its overall appearance, like it was a used jacket which causes Dorothy and Blanche to laugh off her lack of style and explain the confusion. And now, with this money, Blanche can accessorize the aviator jacket, not with a purse, but with an aviator. To keep their ticket safe while they go out to dinner to celebrate the win, Blanche puts the ticket into one of the jacket's pockets and then throws the jacket on the couch. Coco, you and I have discussed this before, the plan that we would have in place if we were to ever find ourselves with a winning lottery ticket. Yeah, the the state lottery office is pretty close by in Salem. Yeah, and, it's an hour and a half south. Yeah, so if we did win, well, my one is if we couldn't go that night, I would just put it in like a some sort of plastic receptacle and like nail it to the wall and look <laughs> at it all night and not sleep. But then, yeah, if we could, we would get in the car immediately, drive straight down there. Yeah. Write our names on the back of those things. Don't tell anyone because I feel like we could get hijacked for our, <laughs> our lottery ticket. Yeah, I feel like I would find a wall. I feel like we have spare wallets or something. Find a wallet, put it in the wallet, get a briefcase, put it in the briefcase, lock the briefcase, sleep with the briefcase, and then drive first thing in the morning. We also have that fake book that's like a little safe. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. Too. That we put that one <laughs> Heather Graham movie in. <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> And you wouldn't find it interesting. It's weird. We're nuts. The girls leave to go to their rooms to get ready. When Sophia comes back from ordering her bike, the girls tell her to get ready to go out to dinner, which she already is. Being alone in the living room, she's left to answer the door. Finding a man who has stolen Stan's jeans, plaid shirt, and tan jacket, and possibly his rug, Sophia is met by Dan, who has come to collect donations for the hospital's thrift store, not to check on Sophia's blood pressure. Dave is being portrayed by Art K. Caustic. His 30-year career had him seen on Dallas, Webster, La Bamba, Hill Street Blues, Valerie, Knott's Landing, Moonlighting, Remington Steel, The Ropers, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, and The Rockford Files. Sophia is also uneducated in the world of distressed fashion, so when she sees Blanche's crummy-looking jacket on the couch, she assumes it too belongs with the donations, eliciting gasps from the audience. Getting changed and charging through the living room like an Easter parade of pinks, blues, and yellows and greens, the ladies are ready for dinner. With a blip, time has passed and the girls are home. They are now scrambling, frantically searching the house for that jacket. Well, not all the girls. Sophia is sitting on the couch, biting her lip from her guilt. Hearing all of their clamoring about the jacket's location, Sophia can't take it anymore and she spills. She'll buy a new jacket with her lottery money. Swarming into Sophia's face, the girls want more information as to why she is even speaking on the jacket's location. Feeling fearful, Sophia grabs a plastic water pitcher from Chuck E. Cheese that is being used as a flower vase on the couch table. Holding the flowers up in defense, Dorothy tells her to spill it. 
so she literally does, dropping the flowers to the floor. With another ask as to where the jacket is, Sophia tells them she gave it to the thrift store. The jerk! Without hesitation, the girls are out the door. Sophia is still confused as to why a jacket would mean so much, so then Rose tells her about the ticket. She is now just as frantic to get to the store and is happy to let the girls get a head start. She'll just jump in the car as it's going out the driveway. Ooh, we've got another location. This time, it's the hospital's thrift store. As someone who was once an avid thrifter, back when I was an avid scratch-it player, I gotta say, this store is a mess. Just piles of clothes on tables, no clear organization. Mm-mm. Coming in hot, the girls quickly find Dan and inquire about the jacket. Sophia corrects Blanche's comment about the accidental donation being a terrible mistake. It isn't that terrible, it was just an accident. A really terrible mistake is forgetting that a different world was on after the Cosby show. I agree with Rose's confused face here. I think this joke was supposed to be a burn towards a different world, but in this context, it didn't really land. Were both of those shows on NBC? They were. Weird. I know. Just a minute ago while you were delivering your script, I was I looked up uh, 1988 writer's strike because there's a writer's strike happening right now. Uh-huh. And there was a, a writer's strike. The Writers Guild of America went on strike in January of 1988, I think. Oh, how interesting. Something like that. But it was, yeah, they went on strike from March to August of 1988. And the reason oh. I was looking that up is because when we were watching it, the script is not the best. No. It's kind of confusing and it feels like a bunch of things mashed together and that would make not really sense. well thought out. I'm sorry, when did you say that it ended? Uh, March to August. So August, this came out December. They usually filmed about three months in advance. So this was, well, maybe the whole season. Well, I wonder how they even did that because... It might mean, it might have meant that they couldn't do rewrites, so they maybe may have had to just use. Oh, what if they it had. was already written, yeah. Well, what's interesting is the season premiere didn't come on for season four. The season premiere was October eighth. Oh yeah, and so that seasons would be... usually start in early September, yeah. so it was bumped back. So, yeah, so this was only a couple episodes in. It could have been filmed out of order also or shown out of order of filming. Oh, know? yeah. I was wondering that, too, because it seemed like one of those that could just be kind of plugged in. Yeah. Wherever. So maybe it was one of the first ones when they were back. They're like, we got to throw something together here. That's interesting. And yeah, we are facing yet another writer's strike because the world just is a, a, a cycle that completely repeats itself every couple of years. Wikipedia says it was the longest strike in the history of the Writers Guild of America. Does it say how long it was? 153 days. Oh, interesting, because the one in 2008 mm -hmm. was 100 days. I really hope this one that just took place is like a week and everyone can get back to work and we can have our shows and they can get paid. Support writers, everybody. Yeah, people should be paid and don't let these the streamers say, oh, there's so much content and it's so hard. Okay, then don't make as many shows and don't cut your writers out of the profit of streaming. Figure it out. Figure it out. There's tons of money. So literal, much money. Tons. And you could Billions. just carve off a, an appropriate amount for them. Yeah. A Different World was a spinoff of The Cosby Show featuring Lisa Bonet as Denise Huxtable as she went through college. I'm not sure what Sophia wouldn't have liked about it. They were the first show to touch on AIDS. It featured a diverse, predominantly black cast. They touched on topics that had been too taboo for Cosby. I would think she would like that. Fun fact, 
when Lisa Bonet was pregnant with Zoe Kravitz of Catwoman fame, she was forced to leave the show. Not because the showrunners had an issue with it. In fact, they wanted to represent a young woman in college dealing with a pregnancy. Nope, it was Mr. Served Years in Prison and Deserves More Time, Bill Cosby, who felt it was far too inappropriate for anyone to see Denise pregnant. Did you watch A Different World? I was a little young. I, I sort of watched Cosby. Not We didn't watch anything really religiously back then, but I think I saw one or two of them. But like I said, I was pretty young, so I didn't get how cool they all were. It was pretty cool. They seemed cool. Yeah, I liked it. Well, I, I grew up loving that other sitcom. And I yeah, I, I started watching it and I was like, man, that is cool. That's the one with the kid with cool. the glasses, right? Dwayne Wayne, baby. Yeah. Yeah, I loved him. <laughs> the lift up shades. So cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really like that show. I can't remember who else is in it, but I, I, it was a good one. There were a lot of people through the years. Sinbad got his start there. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, there were a lot. They shuffled different parts of the cast several times and, and a lot of people came through those doors. It's a different world. It's a different world. Dave remembers picking the items up just a few hours prior, so he knows that jacket is around there somewhere. Walking over to the table of 1,000 plaid nightmares, Dave encounters a large man who, from his sunglasses to his jeans, is dressed in all black, and he's holding the jacket. With a deep and serious tone, the man informs Dave that Michael wants this jacket. Andre Rosie Brown, playing the bodyguard, got his start appearing on Hill Street Blues. Before acting in film and television, he was a star football player for the University of Montana and a police officer for the city of Inglewood, California. Adding to his 84 career credits were productions like My Wife and Kids, ER, Mad TV, The Jamie Foxx Show, Frasier, Space Jam, Friends, The Fresh Prince, Full House, Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, Living Single, Class Act, Blood Fist 3, Forced to Fight, Tango and Cash, and Say It With Me Now, La La. Blood Fist 3, Forced to Fight. Have you seen that? Yes, definitely. I believe it stars Don the Dragon Wilson. Wow. Who, it was a direct-to-video well, yes. martial artist <laughs> who became, well, the Blood Fist, which is what a crazy title. Yeah. I'm going to have to probably put a little <laughs> Blood Fist 3 in here. Now, Don the Dragon Wilson is Jimmy Bolin, an innocent man, wrongly imprisoned and forced to fight. I'm gonna send you up to cell block C. You're gonna wish you'd never been born. Welcome to the laundry room. Everything in here is white. Except for you, man. Trapped in a world of hate and anger, Don the Dragon Wilson is surrounded by the deadliest and most desperate criminals in America. If you wanna fight, fight the damn system that got you here! Not each other! Don the Dragon Wilson. Richard Roundtree in. On! Ready to go? You won't ever get out. I don't want to get out. Forced to fight. We'll see Andre again later this season when he auditions for a talent show and has a very different tone to his voice. Seeing that the man is holding the jacket, Rose begs for something to be done. It's just too bad Dorothy doesn't have her flamethrower on her. Stepping up to work some magic, Blanche slaps the large man's arm and starts the tirade of, Now listen here! 
To listen better, the man gets nose to nose with her, intimidating her into simply sharing that the zipper, it's a little wonky. Hoping sweetness is the route that will work, Rose proposes that he allows her to just try the jacket on for one second, which is just another sitcom moment where you find yourself yelling at the TV saying, just say you left something in the pocket and that he can have the jacket. Without clarity or a specific request being made, the bodyguard looks out the shop's door and realizes they don't have time for a fashion show. Michael has got to get to his concert. It is my humble opinion that this is the moment the episode takes a turn. It's already been pretty sitcom-y, with the whole winning the lottery and giving away the ticket, but when Dorothy says she would like to see the Michael this man is talking about, we get into Goofyville. Yeah, Dorothy and the rest of the world would like to see this, Michael. With another lean into the girls' faces, the bodyguard announces that the show is sold out before looking around suspiciously and hollering, Michael! Between the two guards at the door, one shimmering glove appears, and now we know the Michael is, no Rose, not Michael J. Fox, star of TV's Family Ties and the Back to the Future franchise, and our hearts. This is the Michael from the Pepsi commercials. And I do want to just add that the second Coco saw that glove pop up, he happened to be standing up letting the dog out the door, and he bent over in shock, laughter, uh, dismay. Yeah, I was fully flabbergasted. <laughs> and yeah, I bent over toward the TV and my mouth hung open like I was going to s- just start, I guess, barfing. <laughs> Yeah, that was full. That was like um, it reminded me of like something on like Married with Children or something yeah. like that. Like something Three's really company like low rent, or, yeah. silly. Yeah, real over the top. Yeah, did I not mean, make me say hee hee. <laughs> Even The Simpsons did it. I think around that same time, maybe a couple years after. That's one of my least favorite episodes. Yeah, where the where he's in the asylum. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, thank you. Mm-mm. <laughs> As this episode aired in late 1988, the bodyguard was alluding to Michael Jackson's hugely successful worldwide bad tour. Although Michael never actually made it to Florida for a show, the closest concert would have been in Atlanta that April. The closest he got to the girls, though, was Pensacola, which is in the panhandle of Florida, nearly 700 miles away from Miami. To prep for the tour, Michael utilized the Pensacola Civic Center as a rehearsal space for nearly a month, The Bad Tour was massive, making it the second highest grossing tour of the 80s. It was sponsored by Pepsi, as was Michael. Like the girls mentioned, he notoriously appeared in several commercials for the soft drink after he and his brothers were signed to a $5 million spokesperson deal. As popular as the commercials were, they are best remembered now for the accident that took place on the set of one in January 1984 when Michael's hair and the products applied to it were set ablaze by a rogue firework. They were able to put the flames out quickly, but Michael did receive second and third degree burns on his scalp, causing him to lose some of his hair. Ironic to this episode, his jacket also suffered burns. The girls are excited because it's Michael Jackson, but they're still more concerned about the jacket and ticket. As they holler out to him, asking for just a moment to speak, their calls are confused for those of rabid fans, and he drives away, the coat in his arms. It's the following night, and Rose is in a taupe sweatshirt and jeans, Dorothy in a bright red blouse, Blanche in her coffee brown baggy sweater, and Sophia, sitting at the kitchen island, is in her blue and green plaid dress with a bright blue cardigan. 
Back at the house, the girls are gathered in the kitchen, watching Rose make a plea about the ticket to someone on the phone. As Rose starts to thank that person, things seem promising. Hopes are lifted by Rose's optimistic tone. Blanche, Dorothy, and Sophia can hardly wait to hear what she has to say after hanging up. Sitting at the table, Rose tells them that the man on the other side of the conversation totally agreed with her frustration and validated her feelings of how unfair the whole situation was. He then said she hadn't called the lottery commission. She had called his Chinese restaurant. Instead of just dialing the correct number, the girls all give up. Even the free egg rolls offered by the restaurant owner won't quell their depression. No ticket equals no money. And that's that. I can really relate to giving up after like misdialing a phone number or something. <laughs> You're not going to do it again. Uh, any reason to procrastinate. <laughs> I'll do that tomorrow. I tried to make my appointment, but I called the wrong number. So now I can't. I made a mistake and I'm stupid <laughs> and I don't deserve to make this appointment. <laughs> that's the spirit. Checking in on Sophia, Blanche wants to make sure she's okay. She is. She's just feeling down when thinking about how she had wanted to spoil her girls since they had been taking such good care of her for so long. Looking at the paper, Rose suggests they go to a movie to perk up their spirits. Blanche sarcastically asks if they have the money for it. Yeah, you do. Why, back in the day, movies were just a couple of dollars. Not a bank drain like it is today, but you should still support your local theaters. If they had decided to go to the movies, they had so many amazing options to choose from, like Twins, Scrooge, Naked Gun, Rain Man, Oliver and Company, Tequila Sunrise, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Land Before Time, Working Girl, or Child's Play. What a variety. Could you imagine? I lived it. That really was kind of nostalgic, even just reading that, because it's like, oh, man, you would sit and look at the paper and you would look at everything that was playing and be like, what? Oh, man, there's so many I want to see. What do I really want to see in the theater? What time works? Boom. And now it's like, is that movie even going to the theaters? Is that a movie or is it is a show? Is that a movie? That's the worst when it's like, please just be a movie that I can just watch and move on from. When it's when it's the opposite of what you wanted it to be. Yes. It sucks. Yes. That looks like a great movie. Oh, oh man. It's a it's 10 like, part oh, series. Great. There's no way. <laughs> we struggle. We struggle to finish almost everything. I was really excited and happy for us the other day when we finished 12th Victim. Because we had that last episode sitting there for like three months. It was excellent. I'm and then we're we like, oh, let's do it. Let's finish it. Yeah, we just don't. No. We don't have, I don't know what it is, but we, we're movie people. Give us a movie. Yeah, maybe that's it. The length is what's hard to commit to. I'm just. To care about something for like 15 hours or something like that. For us, movies are like a meal. And we want to go and we just want to like slam it down and have it be rich and full. And like we want to leave feeling like full and disgusting. And a series is like you're picking at something for so long just to get to like one little answer at the end or something. And it's like it's like a rotisserie chicken's been sitting out for a couple of days. The <laughs> and whole just family's picking just picking at, at it. <laughs> yes. It's going to make you sick, but no one cares. That's a great comparison. Thank you. Not a fan of rotisserie chicken. Yeah. I don't like the way it feels, but I do like the way it looks. Those sweaty little packages at the store. <laughs> oh, my God. It looks so good. While Dorothy is pissed about the situation, she can accept the reality of it. 
They thought they were going to have a chunk of money. Now the money they never had is gone, leaving them in no different a financial situation than they had been in the day before. Continuing to look at the newspaper, Rose finds some promising information that there is going to be an auction taking place in town, and one of the items available will be a leather jacket worn by a mega pop star during his local concert the night before. Hoping Michael never reached into the pocket, the girls feel they might have a chance at getting the ticket. Good thing Rose read that because the auction has already been going on for 20 minutes. I've seen a lot of auctions on TV and movies. Mm -hmm. I've never been to an auction. Have you been to an auction? I have been to an auction. It was very fun. I I like silent auctions because you keep running around and checking the thing you want and make sure no one outbids you. I really like those. And then in Vegas, I went to a couple benefits and one of them, you're going to love this. One of them had an auction and the auction was hosted by none other than Robin Leach. No. Yes, it was. And he Did he was, seem cool? No, he was as pompous and nose in the air as you would expect for someone who spent his life talking about the rich and famous. As they scamper out the door, Sophia, hoping the windfall is still a possibility, wants to make it clear that while she does want to get gifts for the girls, they're not going to be expensive. Getting to the fancy schmancy location, which if my memory serves was also the location of the dinner from the flu episode, the girls run inside finding an auctioneer hollering about a painting. It also reminded me of the funeral home set. Oh, yeah, kind of. Yeah. I bet a lot of uh, shared pieces. It might have just been the direction they were facing. Yeah, or that too. <laughs> Playing the auctioneer is Howard Goodwin. He worked strictly in the 1980s, so his credits are quite a time capsule. His career consisted of appearances on The Violation of Sarah McDavid, Voyagers, Celebrity, Fatal Vision, Cheers, Hill Street Blues, Moonlighting, Doogie Howser, MD, and La La. Do you know anything about The Violation? of Sarah McDavid, is that what it was called? Uh, An inner city high school teacher, Patty Duke, is assaulted in her classroom. The principal, Ned Beatty, Beatty, tries to cover it up. It also has Ali Sheedy. Patty, oh, I'm thinking of Patty Hearst. I'm so sorry. Oh, Patty Duke is um, Rudy's mom. Oh, she is. Wow. Fun fact about the Astons. Yeah. And my dad, somehow through like a, a another friend he was he like got to kind of know john Aston and like went to dinner at his house really my dad yeah when he was like older like in the late 80s or early 90s yeah that's from and then he was like the greatest guy yeah he always seemed cool yeah. i mean he was adam's family for crying out loud he was adam's family yeah so that's sean and mckenzie's dad didn't know and that. patty duke his mom Thankfully, the girls have arrived in the nick of time as a model has taken the stage wearing blanche slash michael's jacket Again, feeling certain no one looked in the pockets, they hope to be able to buy the jacket and then get the ticket. But again, they could probably just approach whoever bought it, but not in this world, baby. I really love that what I can only assume are for legal reasons. They weren't allowed to say worn by Michael Jackson. They had to really get creative with their descriptions of him being the big pop star in town and the world's biggest singer and all these things dancing around it. It's pretty funny. Before they get started with the bidding, Rose has a dumb question, and Sophia has a box of square gum. Who cares? But Rose needs to know how high they should plan on bidding. B, 
Being logical, Dorothy has no problem bidding high, saying they could even go up to $1,000 because they'll still be ahead of the game. Adding to the plan, Blanche suggests they don't come out of the gate at that price. They'll start low, like at 100 bucks, and then see how much competition there is. But all hope is lost when the bidding begins and the starting price is the exact prize of the winning ticket, $10,000. Stunned? Just stunned? Stunned is the only way to describe how stunned I am. Blanche gets in the bidding man's face. Not interested in getting more money for the homeless, the goal of the auction, the auctioneer rushes through the closing process and awards the man the jacket. Coco, this thought just came into my head. They should have gone into a bidding war with that guy because even if they went up just a little bit past the 10000 they could have won the jacket, taken the ticket that paid for the jacket, and then sold the jacket at auction for $10,000. Yeah, or, or like when they, when they won the auction, go up there grab just the ticket and run out because once the once That's true then once give it you're to the near other the guy. jacket you don't you could just you could just leave that tra- as i always say leave the area leave the area take the thing that belongs to you yeah run out basically because you don't they don't want to explain it yeah so now they oh, yeah, don't have they should to. have see that's I think that's why this episode is disliked. I think that's the subconscious nature is that there are so many opportunities to correct the issue in a sensible way that never happens. So you're just left feeling frustrated. And that's another example of that. Yeah, it doesn't feel quite like them. Yeah, the, they the are smarter they than that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah they, could, they could figure something out or have, like, Blanche, do, you know, get do something on him. Yeah. Like, well, like Rose do says. Do something on him. You know? Yes. Having won, the man wishes to speak to the crowd. Sophia feels that for that kind of money, he should be able to shower with them. Playing Philip Starr was one of Stan Wojno's last roles before he passed away at far too young of an age, just 45 years old in 1993. Some of his 21 credits were for Cagney and Lacey, DuckTales, a lot of 80s G.I. Joe animations, Knott's Landing, and Dynasty. Disappointed to have lost the money yet again, the women lament about what could have been. Rose wanted to take a ride on the supersonic airliner, the Concorde. Starting flights in 1969, the Concorde was famous for going twice the speed of sound, allowing for three-hour transatlantic flights. It's also famous in my life for being something my mom will constantly reference for how devastated she was to have never been able to take a flight on it. Blanche is just devastated she won't be able to buy that emerald pendant she had hoped would draw even more attention to her perky bosom. She was only going to buy a one-inch pendant? Sophia won't be able to get her own set of perky bosoms, but she guesses that's okay since nothing else on her body is perky anyway. That's when Dorothy realizes they still might have a chance. No, they're not going to approach the man and just ask to grab their personal property from the pocket. They're going to sneak up and snatch it out. Blanche even offers to be a distraction by using some friendly persuasion, which obviously means hearty flirting. Unaware as usual, Rose tells Blanche to throw out the casual persuasion she isn't trying to get into the executive restaurant and event space The Rainbow Room, located high above Rockefeller Center. Blanche needs to do whatever is necessary. Rose's competitive side is showing again, this time with trying to re-win her money. Giving his speech, Congressman Starr shares that this purchase was merely a political stunt. 
He had had bad press come out about his treatment of the houseless community. And instead of just doing more to help, like legislation or something like that, he feels that the $10,000 donation should clear up whatever negative thing he had done. Realizing the jacket wasn't important to the congressman, the girls feel hopeful again. Feeling like this will be an easy task, Blanche is excited to flirt with him to get to the ticket. Rose suggests that to make sure everything goes as it should, Blanche should just sleep with him, just in case. Before they can distract, flirt, or sleep with the congressman, he makes another announcement. He cared so little for what the jacket represented, he had one of his aides take it to a nearby shelter so it could provide warmth and comfort to a member of the houseless community. Okay, another thought coming to my head right now, Coco. That is a dangerous situation. A $10,000 jacket? Well, the girls implied that they asked an aide where the jacket was sent to. Mm -hmm. So anyone in that room could have done that and then been on the hunt for whoever ended up with it. And then like, violently taken it from Oh, yeah, because it's supposed to be Michael Jackson. Yeah. I forgot about that aspect. Yeah, he's making the point of, like, I just want it to be a jacket to keep someone warm, which in theory is nice, but it's a dangerous situation. You just put, like, a very valuable thing in someone's hands. Also, did you mention, did we talk about that that jacket is not a Michael Jackson jacket? Not a Michael Jackson? You know, I didn't mention that, but, yeah, it's not. He would never... I don't know if he was into the red jacket at this point. I'm thinking it's he's like bedazzled with like the epaulets and the dangly things on the. Yeah, when he was doing saying. the military stuff. And yeah, like that's the, a good yeah, theory. the sort of like uh, the sh- the shoes with the white spats or whatever on them, and yes. yeah, the si- the military like the aviator sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not the brown. Yeah, too dull. Never. And Unless I will he was say- going undercover as like a regular person. <laughs> As of 2019, there were 3,472 houseless people in the Miami area and shelters with beds for just over 2,500 people. I couldn't find a number for how many people were on the streets in 1988, but all of the shelters, which were privately owned at the time, hosted only 400 beds. Sounds like those were like for show. Yeah. To be like, look what we do for the community. Or probably very specific people or very tight regulations for who could use it. What a time the late 80s were. Floridian Republicans, of all people, were trying to pass bills to allow for homeless people to take shelter in the new stadiums that were being built. The Republicans were upset that those in need would be losing out while millionaires and billionaires were raking in the cash. Wow. It would be super cool if that stuff was still happening and not, you know, nonstop barrages of hate and attacks towards the LGBTQIA2S plus community. But a girl can dream. It seems the girls found out the exact location the jacket had been sent. Awkwardly walking down a hallway or an alley, they come upon the shelter's door. And now everything about this episode is about to change. Blanche complains that the place is a bit drab, causing Dorothy to remind her this isn't a fancy Hilton hotel, this is a shelter. For Sophia, it brings back memories of the home, although Shady Pines' exit signs weren't lit up. Turning to Dorothy for a plan as to how to approach this delicate situation, she rhetorically asks if she looks like Peter Graves. Sophia tells her that if she relaxed her hair and wore a more natural lipstick, yeah, she could. Dorothy asked that as Peter Graves was the original Jim Phelps, a.k.a. the Tom Cruise character in the movies of Mission Impossible. 
He was on the TV show from 1967 to 73 and when it was brought back from 88 to 90. I was just going to talk about that in the Wikipedia article I was reading. It said that after the strike, one of the things, one of the shows that went into production was a reboot of Mission Impossible. How amazing. Oh, I, I wish I hadn't just gone through puberty when I said that. I did like it, though. Yeah. Mission Impossible was uh, was rebooted then. I have a question about the character, the Jim Phelps character. Was he like the main spy dude? Yeah, it's Tom Cruise. It's like the guy. That's cool, because in, in the first Mission Impossible movie, John Voight plays Phelps. Who I think oh. is supposed to be that character and is like his mentor. That's cool. Uh, for, so it's like Ethan passing Hunt. the torch. Yeah. Oh, and, Ethan Hunt. That's right. Yeah. In a really, in a really cool way. They do it in a very cool mission. Oh, that's cool. Way. So yeah, he yeah. is the lead like Tom Cruise is in the movies. Yeah. But yeah, he's the older character. So he's like John Voight. That's really cool. That's I never, I never watched the, the show. So I, I knew about it, but I didn't know that he played Phelps. But I would have known, I would have made that connection had I ever watched it because I've seen the Mission Impossible movie about 4,000 times. <laughs> It was on HBO a lot when I was 16. What are you supposed to do? Not watch it? Not play sports or go out <laughs> with people or do things. Not have extracurricular activities. Give me that little Caesar and a film. You may also know Peter from his role as the captain on Airplane, playing across from future golden girl hunk Leslie Nielsen. He was also the host and narrator of A&E's biography back when they were a classy channel. He will also be appearing as Jerry Kennedy in season seven with the girls. Ah, what a classic voice. Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. No, I mean, I'm just not sure. Or can't you take a guess? Well, not for another two hours. You can't take a guess for another two hours? No, 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 I mean, we can't land for another two hours. Fog has closed down everything this side of the mountains. We've got to get through to Chicago. Hello, I'm Peter Graves. Welcome to Biography. And by golly, they were well done. Yeah, if I do say so. Uh, so I, I consider that a, a very fortunate thing to have done in a career. I'm Peter Graves. Thanks for watching. Coming up with her own plan, Blanche suggests that they get into the shelter and do whatever it takes, lie, cheat, steal, threaten, to go get that ticket. Before she can get into more detail about those threats, a priest comes through the door. Getting his start on General Hospital in 1963, Matthew Faison, playing Father Campbell, has been acting ever since, racking up 135 credits. Of course, he appeared on everything you'd expect. Falcon Crest, MASH, Taxi, Beverly Hills 90210, ER, Lou Grant, Magnum P.I., Night Court, and Coco's favorite, The Journey of Natty Gan. But Matthew is more of a scream queen, appearing in Friday the 13th Part 6, The Case of the Hillside Strangler, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge, and of course, Lala. Again, I feel I've seen all of those movies. I don't doubt it. And definitely Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's maybe the one where the leech lady, leech puppet comes in or this guy with the screw head, drill head, I mean. You're a huge fan of Matthew Faison then. I guess I am. You celebrate his catalog. Feel so many to, Puppet Masters. Feel free to throw in. I don't have a clip here, but oh, yeah. if you want to. Puppet Master 3, you got it. And Blood Fist 3, no problem. <laughs> The Nazis thought they held the world's strings, but Andre Toulon didn't need wires to make death move. Never knew a man played with dolls before. Nothing will stop me from seeking you out, and you will cry me mercy, and I will have none. What is the secret? Nell! No mercy. 
Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. Deterred by the presence of the priest and being saved, even though Blanche is a Baptist, they need a new plan. The priest is surprised to find the group of gals standing around, yet again, another chance is being presented for them to just explain themselves. Instead, Blanche says that they all need to come in and stay the night. Even though they're dressed as they are, they don't need a bed, and the father isn't sure if he even has the space, and they won't be let out until the morning. She wants to get inside. The father doesn't judge or ask any questions. He simply welcomes them, grabbing pillows for their use. Dorothy is not sure about this whole situation, but Blanche and Rose are now feeling like this will be their last chance. Besides, they've chased down the jacket to a thrift store, an auction, and now a shelter. They cannot give up now. Once again, the girls have arrived just in time as the father was about to lock up and give the lights out order. This may seem like a lot of rules, but many shelters have those kinds of systems in place. Curfews, lights out, inability to leave, so on. And those restrictions are a big reason many houseless folks choose not to stay in shelters. They need the freedom or need to be able to leave for work, mental health, or other personal issues. As the girls enter the shelter space, all hugging their pillows, they are quickly overcome with what can only be described as awkwardness. I'm going to start by calling out the shelter for having adult men, women, and children together. Now, there are family shelters that allow for that, but you wouldn't normally see solo guys with the families, obviously for safety reasons. The audience isn't sure how to react either. There are some uncomfortable giggles and probably expectations that the girls are going to embarrass themselves looking for the jacket. Little did the audience know what kind of very special episode they were about to enter. Finding a room full of cots and people, the girls make their way to the open beds and start to get comfortable. First is Rose, who is going military style on her bed, getting the blanket all tucked in. In the cot next to her is a man who can't help but stare before asking if she'll be putting a bow on the bed when she's done wrapping it. Theodore Teddy Wilson is playing Albert. You may remember him as the diner owner from the Nightmare Before Christmas episode. Perhaps we can get some fan fiction going on on how the girls totally screwed up the restaurant that night. You know, I Love Lucy style, which then led to him losing the restaurant, his money, and his home. And he's been on the streets ever since, staying occupied by searching for that group of women who ruined him so he could seek his revenge. Then one day, he looked over in the shelter, and there they were. He could now get that revenge. In real life, Teddy had a busy but limited career as he passed away in 1991 at just 47 years old. Teddy did do some theatrical work, but most of his appearances were on the big and little screen. You may have seen him in The Waltons, The Partridge Family, MASH, Beretta, Love Boat, That's My Mama, All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Kojak, What's Happening, The Red Fox Show, Family Matters, Tales from the Crypt, and, of course, La La. I wonder what Tales from the Crypt he is on, and I also wonder what That's My Mama is. (laughs) That's My Mama was a 1974 sitcom. It ran for two years, and the premise is that a bachelor barber battles his mother's plans to find him a wife. Boom. It is in this moment that we learn Rose suffers from compulsive behaviors, perhaps related to OCD or anxiety. She apologizes for disturbing the man, explaining it's just the Minnesota farm girl in her. He's delighted to hear, as he too is from Minnesota. 
In an attempt to learn what part of the state the man was from, Rose says, St. Olaf, to which he responds, Ben Wheaton, nice to meet you. I wonder if he was from the south side. Rose corrects herself and gives her name. Oh, he figured. It's not like he would get to meet a real saint. With a flicker of the lights, Rose learns it's time for lights out. That means everyone needs to get into their bed and stay there, but they can still talk with each other. Always one of habits, or perhaps compulsions, Rose is bummed when she realizes she hasn't brushed her teeth before going to bed. Ben feels the same way. He brushes after every meal. So he's actually hoping she has a meal on her. Instead of acknowledging that he's a hungry human, Rose curls into the bed, pulling the covers up in fear. Getting to Blanche and her bed. She's sitting up on her elbow, as is the guy across from her. When she sees him staring, she calls him out. Claiming to have only been looking at her purse, she quickly goes into one of those threats she had been talking about, telling him that there is a long list of men who bear the scars, usually hidden from the public eye, of having tried to do something with her. I love that. Yeah, except that this guy was looking at her purse, hoping she would have some gum. Too bad he wasn't next to Sophia. She's got those chiclets she keeps bragging about. Embarrassed for her reaction, Blanche apologizes, saying she's just not comfortable. When the man suggests she add some padding to the cot with newspapers, she explains she's not comfortable in the shelter. Sitting up, the man then asks if it's her first time. Nearly giddy, she just can't remember the last time a man asked her that in earnest. It seems I've learned the immeasurable importance of being earnest. Know what I mean? <laughs> when he goes on to say he could give her some pointers, well, no man has ever told her that. I would say that you might recognize Carl Windergott from his previous appearance, but he looks totally different from the don't-get-your-support-hose-in-a-knot-kid from the On Golden Girls episode. This, his second and final appearance, has him playing Kenny. He has 42 credits, mostly made up of single appearances on shows like Wings, Coach, Columbo, 21 Jump Street, Star Trek Voyager and Enterprise, NYPD Blue, and Judging Amy. But it is his 253-episode appearances on The Simpsons that he is best known for. Though he doesn't play any designated characters, he tends to do side characters that have only a line or two. He did, however, supply the voice for President Clinton when he appeared in later episodes. In this house, though, we celebrate his appearance on the best show to go to sleep to, Fact or Fiction. In Season 2, Episode 8, he played Ted Beeman in the Kirby segment. Ted Beeman works in a special effects house that makes figures for theme parks, children's museums, and the movies. All right, what's up with the lousy monkey? His name's Kirby. He's not a lousy monkey, Perry. He's a giant lowland gorilla. I'll get him to work. It's a software problem. I just need more time. Time is up, okay? Can't let you go. You're like selling a friend. The best friend I ever had. Great. Malfunction. Uh... find out if this story is true or false at the end of our show. What happened here? Did Ted's creation really kill Perry? Coming up, we'll find out which of our stories tonight were fact and which were fiction when Beyond Belief returns. Did he actually come to life on his own? Or did Ted Beeman kill his boss and concoct this entire story to fool the police? We'll find out if this story is true or false at the end of our show. The story of the animatronic gorilla with a mind of its own. 
Did this one really happen? When Beyond Belief returns. Did you guess that a similar story to this one did occur? Not this time. It never happened. The priest was right. There weren't enough beds for the four of them, so Sophia and Dorothy are sharing one. Making sure her mother is comfortable, Dorothy is met with, no surprise, sarcasm. Sophia saying she hopes she can find a fancy version of the cot when they get home so she can order it. Looking to her right, Sophia is shocked to see her friend Ida laying in a cot. Before we can learn about her, we're back to Rose and her Minnesotan friend, who is sharing about his time working at the Excelsior Hotel, which is, as of now, a real place. Located in Excelsior, Minnesota, about 60 miles northwest of St. Olaf, is the Hotel Excelsior, Suites on Water Suite. It looks pretty modern, so I'm not sure if it was renovated or they just made up a name for the show that has since come into existence. It's also 25 miles to the west of Minneapolis, so perhaps it's not the same one at which he worked. In the 22 years he lived in Minneapolis, he moved around quite a bit. Feeling annoyed at Rose's delight to hear he lived in a nice area, he sarcastically says he had to move because his cardboard box just wasn't big enough for hosting parties. Again, Rose goes under the covers. Trying to comfort Blanche, Kenny is walking her through the process she should expect in the morning. They ask you to pay a quarter for the coffee and cereal breakfast, but it's okay if you don't have it. The food will go quick, so she'll need to hustle. Not hearing how tone-deaf she sounds, Blanche explains that now that she's 45, she usually skips breakfast to stay svelte. Looking her straight in the eye, Kenny asks her who she thinks she's fooling. Thinking he's referencing her age, she lies again, but tries to make it more believable with a, okay, 48. But he's talking about how obvious it is that she isn't homeless. This makes Blanche defensive. But she feels better when Kenny says that he's there because he's undercover, working on his grad school doctorate. Oh, what a relief this is for Blanche. This kid was reminding her of her own son, except for the whole in a shelter thing. He wasn't coming off as some bum on the street. Then Kenny comes clean. He's not undercover, and he's not working on his doctorate. In fact, he already has one. He's there because he suffers from alcohol addiction and has nowhere else to go. Back to Sophia and Ida, who are now sharing a cot and reminiscing about their times together at Shady Pines. Ida is being played by Herta Ware. From 1974 to 2000, she had 51 credits on screen and many more on stage. She got her start on Broadway in the 1930s, starring in Let Freedom Ring, Bury the Dead, and Journeyman, among others. She then moved to TV and movies. Before her career was over, thanks to her being blacklisted for being a leftist, she was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hype, Practical Magic, Cruel Intentions, Knott's Landing, Cagney and Lacey, ER, Beauty and the Beast, Cocoon and Cocoon 2, The Return, in which she played Rosie Lefkowitz, who was married to Bernie Lefkowitz, which was played by Sophia's ex-husband, Jack Guilford, a.k.a. Max. Hold on to your butt, Coco. She was also in Critters 2 and Species. Oh, I didn't know she was in Species. I remember... She played Mrs. Morris. Hmm. Probably someone that... Uh... That alien in Species kills. Yeah, Critters Two: The Main Course is a, is a great movie. It's a it's an Easter movie. Too bad we passed oh. Easter. But for those who uh, like that and to celebrate it by watching a film, <laughs> there's a lot of Easter bunny carnage and a big ball of critters that rolls after people <laughs> and eats them. It's great. Thank you. And PG thirteen, but there's some uh, naked 
80s fake boobies in it. Oh, 80s PG-13. Yeah. Yeah. Full nudity. Just, <laughs> wow. That's fun. How about some buffalo chips or a mousse? We're herbivores. We've got great long intestines and the meat just rots in there. Nana, the critters are here. No, Bradley! Christ's feed together. Eat like a family. Love meat. Bad habit. You guys don't eat meat. <laughs> hey, who's going to pay for all this stuff? Look at the mess you guys made. What Sophia loved most from their time together at Shady Pines was when Ida would, during dinner, fake an angina attack so the seniors could get real sour cream while the staff was distracted. Angina is a type of chest pain, according to the Mayo Clinic, that is caused by reduced blood flow to the heart. It's a symptom of coronary artery disease. Go get your heart checked. Everyone loved and appreciated Ida for her sacrifice, and the girls are giggling about their stories. Ida had been in the home until about a year ago, and it had not been her choice to leave, but she couldn't afford to stay. Between the home, doctor's appointments, and everything else that comes along with existing, it just was too much. Back to Rose. She's learning how Ben lost his job at the hotel, tried to find work, but he had been a porter for years and was now in his mid-50s. No one wanted to hire him. Kenny and Blanche are also on the topic of how did you get here? Between grades, pressure, and expectations, Kenny didn't have the tools to cope, so he turned to drinking. We then learn that Ida received a letter telling her she was broke. She was given some resource phone numbers, but they were of little use. Ben had to get to Miami to get away from the deathly cold weather of Minnesota. Realizing it was starting to get late, Ben then asks Rose to tell her story in the morning. Kenny tells Blanche that he's working on getting his life together with the help of the shelter. Before rolling over to go to sleep, Kenny tells Blanche he had never wanted any gum, so she should keep an eye on her purse. As Ida wraps up her heartbreaking story of not being in control of her own life anymore because she's older, needs help, and can't get any, Dorothy stands up. Not acknowledging Ida's story, or even acknowledging Ida at all, she, with the flick of a hand, summons Rose and Blanche from their beds. It's time to find the jacket. What happens next is the real low point of the episode, in terms of both the morality and feeling like it's a Golden Girls episode at all. With a plan of walking through the room of sleeping people, rummaging through their things and hoping to find the jacket, and therefore the ticket, the girls wander and the music starts. Besides being achingly sad to see a room full of men, women, and children without homes of their own trying to get some peaceful rest, the show decided to use the song Brother Can You Spare a Dime, the influence for the episode's title. Brother Can You Spare a Dime was written by Yip Harburg and Jay Gorney. The Great Depression tune was inspired by a Russian-Jewish lullaby. It was originally written for Broadway, but it became well-known after being covered by Bing Crosby in 1932, the same year the song was composed. So if you feel depressed listening to it, it's because it was considered the theme for the Great Depression. Okay, Coco, I wanted to tell you this while we were watching, but I wanted to save your reaction for now. Wonderful. You may recognize the voice in the version in the episode, as it is Cynthia Fee, 
the singer of Thank You for Being a Friend. As in the theme song singer. That's unbelievable. Yeah. That is a fun fact. That's a fun fact. I wonder how many people know that. Probably not that many people. Not That's... that I was shocked wow. to find that out. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Maybe if they had used something less 70s sap, like what I just learned of, the George Michael version, even though it was from 2000, so they obviously couldn't have used it, but something like him, so it wouldn't have felt so, Coco, what's the word, schmaltzy? I would say schmaltzy and um, ill-advised. I mean, walking around like that in front of anybody that's sleeping and like looming Anyone. over, you're going to get your ass kicked. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. It's so dangerous. It's so disrespectful. Invading someone's sleeping yeah, space. I'm yeah, I'm going to run. Oh, no, it's okay. I can rummage through your things to look for my stuff because I'm not homeless. So I'm not like stealing, you know, like yeah. if someone else had gotten up and was rummaging through, it'd be like, oh, the homeless guy is stealing our stuff. I will always appreciate someone using their platform to touch on difficult subjects. The girls have dealt with racism, immigration, sexism, ageism, even AIDS. And I can only guess it's the extreme, even for the girls, goofiness of the entire first like two thirds of the episode, which is then pummeled with this very special episode hammer of a song that for me is what leaves me feeling dizzy from it. You know, it's like been so goofy and so lighthearted. And then they're like, yoink, the rug is out. Yeah, I wonder if they thought that would kind of balance it out. But it doesn't. It actually just makes it like way more imbalanced. Yeah. Or like keep you intrigued. Like, well, we can't just start at a shelter. People won't watch. Yeah. We were talking about how the plotting could have just been so easy. They could have just been walking by and someone talks to them. Yeah. And then they, they're they like, oh, surprised that they have they are in the circumstances where they have to stay in a in a shelter. They, and they've brought that would have been great. They've brought plenty of people into that house, even a pig. So like that. Too, oh, that would have been great, too. Yeah. You can't tell me that. Rose encountered someone at work at the crisis center. Oh, of course, yeah. Who lost their job and lost their home, and then she brings them home just Sophia's, to help. And... Sophia's tooling around the <laughs> on her tricycle. Yes, she meets somebody. Yeah, so many ways that it could have expressed what it's trying to express without it. Like, isn't this sad? They went full Sarah McLaughlin. As part of her search, Rose passes the mother and son we saw playing when we first got to the shelter. Playing the uncredited mother is Sherry Rabinowitz. She had just six acting roles, appearing in Charlie's Angels, Thursday's Child, Silver Spoons, Yorktown in Temporary Command, and General Hospital. However, she was a well-known artist, working in the groundbreaking 1970s telecommunications art. If you picture a tube television and a person moving across the screen, but freeze frames of their own image staying on the screen, that's what she was creating. Her art was so novel, she was actually able to work with NASA for a satellite-based image sharing project. So I don't fully understand what all of it is, but it was groundbreaking, innovative, and it sounds like kind of the original like NFT type stuff. This moment itself is important. It shows every age, gender, and race of person in the shelter, illustrating that houselessness can affect anyone. 
After the saddest montage of all time, we're back with Ida and Sophia. Comforting her friend and perhaps alluding to her staying up eight hours, yakking her ear off, Sophia is telling Ida that there are people who care, and she just needs to hold on until tomorrow. Not the most helpful advice, but Ida takes it, as it is now tomorrow. The girls creeped around all night before Blanche approaches the huddle solemnly to proclaim she has found the ticket. Without a word, the girls look at each other with understanding, and when the priest unlocks the front door and enters to greet the occupants, Sophia takes the ticket and hands it to him. With one last glance to their new friends and one last, Brother, can you spare a dime? The girls are gone, and the episode is over which had Coco screaming at the screen. And then it just ends. Holy f***. It was shocking. (laughs) Yeah, it was just over. So we're at the end now. I'd like to hear your thoughts. You hadn't seen that episode, but I had shown you a snippet of that song. I think the episode was just on TV, and I was like, look at how sad this is. Yeah, I did remember that there was some sort of cheesy song that happened, but that was all I remembered. It was... It is hard to believe. It was like someone, <laughs> some other team came in and made a Golden, Golden Girls episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they were like, oh, we do kind of like hit topics and issues and things like that, social issues. So we're going to like kind of meld these two terrible scripts together. And I wonder, too, how much the writer's room had changed. Like there's always a head writer yeah. that does the episode, but there's still other writers that work on it. And it's like if you had a bunch of writers that maybe quit the show or weren't able to return after the strike and then they got a bunch of different people in. That might have oh, been. it might have changed the voice a bit for a yeah, while. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, not good. <laughs> funny at points. Yeah, a and, couple really funny jokes. And I really liked the performances of the the people that they met in the shelter. Yes, all three of them were really great. Yeah, I but it was great to see that actor again from the from the episode with the diner. And yeah. before you started saying that, I was like, oh, maybe he's that guy and he <laughs> lost his job because they yeah. took over. And then you said it. That was great. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so not, not that that would be good, but and it's hard too to say like, oh, this episode sucks because it is so meaningful, and there are people that maybe have perceptions that with this episode they could change their mind even just a little bit of how they thought about people on the streets. All the girls could have come together to say, hey, we have the resources, we certainly have the space in our mansions of bedrooms that we could at least provide her a home for safety's sake for a couple of weeks and then figure out, can we pay for her to be in a home? Can we pay for her to be in, you know, another facility or something? They could have come together to do that. But instead, she's like, somebody will help you. See you later. (laughs) What matters with today's episode is the intention. Sure, it was a bad or weird episode, Sure, the vibe was way off, but it was what they were trying to do that mattered. By sharing space with those society has deemed lesser than, the girls humanized the people who are houseless and the crises they face. And that was not only a great use of their platform, but a move that was not made by many shows in the 80s, and it could have caused a lot of backlash. So in an effort to remain positive, I'll leave things at that. We can all learn from the girls that sometimes you need to stop and look at the lives of those around you, that it's important to take a moment and put yourselves in their shoes and to look inside your heart and sometimes pockets to find what you can do to help those who need it. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. 
Be sure to join us next week when we get things back on the hilarious track with Scared Straight. You know, it's nice. It's like usually in a relationship, this is when I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> at least at least one wheel is off the wagon. Yeah, same. <laughs> it's like, well, we'll hit that four-year mark and move oh, on yeah. our way. But no, I'm on you like a tick. That's right. A secret tick a that you don't even know is there. Yes. <laughs> Hiding somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> Sucking. This isn't concerning to Sophia. She would rather keep reading. Oh. I would rather keep reading. I would I would also prefer, <laughs> prefer that to this. Oh, we have fun. Mm-mm. <laughs> As they range between four to one thousand dollars. Well, four hundred, you stupid. Well, and it shows responsibility. She's like, I'm not behind the wheel. I can't I'm be. behind three wheels. But I'm on three wheels. Exactly. 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 Um, I'm going through the video here. Well, he's mostly laying in bed in a white turtleneck, like yelling about the danger zone. It's very weird. So, 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 so. Denise Huxtapole as she went through col- col- collage. collage. <laughs> I've never been to collage. <laughs> Clearly. I'm, yeah, I, yep. That is, that, that is some, that's some, sim- that is symbolism. Do you think there's a parakeet charity? A Cherokee. Mm, bird conservation. Mm, bird conservation. <laughs> this being a silly goose. Quack, quack. Mm-hmm. One of those? Mm-hmm. They go to a movie to perk up their bosoms. It's the skin. Going through a lot. I'm yeah. Going through a lot. Work it through. I gotta Work move this out. mic closer so I can scream uh, e- better, easier. <laughs> That feels more fun, and then our interactions are fun, and everything's fun. Till Daddy takes our little T-bird away. That's right. Bop. That's a different song. Yeah, it is. It was Walk Like a Man. <laughs> Changed. Cool songs. Cool new songs by people older than, like, my parents. <laughs> who were born in the 40s. <laughs> we just watched a guy who, oh, whatever, whatever. Let's make a deal. That whole thing. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. All right. The guy who was in the Holocaust. Yeah. And then uh, won a mini golf party. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. He was like the loveliest old man. Oh, my God. That was so funny. The man who survived the Holocaust and won a mini golf party. <laughs> it's true. That's just a statement. That's nothing. It happened. It was we great. And it. he was dressed like a butler. It was very funny. <laughs> well, originally from Belgium. New York most of my life. I'm in Los Angeles now. Uh, I, uh, in Belgium, I went through the Holocaust and uh, the U.S. Army in Korea. I just beat cancer lately. Congratulations. (laughs) But I walked into this place saying something about curtain number one. So I'm going to go with curtain number one. Well, let's see. Curtain one, open up. It's a miniature golf party. Congratulations, Ari. Got a miniature golf party. Well, let's make a deal right after this.
I, I cry bad gum. Chiclets bad gum. Chiclets good gum for 10 seconds and then Chiclet's very bad gum. Chiclets good gum if you take like four pieces. I mean, I honestly will put the whole thing in my mouth. <laughs> my dad was a Chiclets dad. Chiclets dad. Always had dad. the Chiclets. And if anyone else out there has a Chiclets dad, uh, <laughs> Gmail us. Don't just stare at it. Eat it. Harumph. Puppet Master 3 might be the Western one. I don't know. Uh, there's a song from Critters 2 that I have had in my head since 1988 or whenever that came out. Uh, for there's like a there's like a burger restaurant in town that they go to. Mm -hmm. It's a place called the Hungry Heifer. Have I sang this to you before? I don't know that you have, but I can't wait. And it plays a few times, kind of like pivotally in the movie. It's pretty cool, pretty funny. At the Hungry Heifer, we won't feed you no steer. You've definitely sung that for me before. <laughs> Beautiful song. It's a good one. It worked. Great advertising writing. It has lived inside of me for thirty years. <laughs> 35 even. Wow. At the hungry heifer, we won't give you a I should maybe get a critter's tattoo. Oh, fun. I do love me a critter. When they're standing up on their little legs. Yeah, they're cute. They're very cute. They have huge toothy mouths. Hooking up with Michael Madsen. Can you imagine? Well, it was 95. <laughs> wow, what a time. Ben Kingsley's up in there as a stupid scientist. Thank you for the friendship. That one? <laughs> no, that's ours. I know. Too much money. Got too, <laughs> too much, much money. money. Once I built a railroad. Now it's done. Brother, can you spare and Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.